have a white President's Day. <laughs> I've been singing that song all morning. I'm dreaming of a white President's Day. Don't you love it when little children imitate their parents? Sometimes it can be really cute, right? Sometimes. <laughs> Two-year-old of a friend came up to me and said, my syntax is getting much better. It's like, where'd you learn that? <laughs> but it is true that uh, things come out of our mouths that sometimes our children imitate that kind of are embarrassing, right? That happens as well. We're all naturally imitators. We imitate others. We watch to figure out life, and we watch others and imitate them. You see it especially in children. You know, the little boy who follows his dad around and has to have play tools just like his dad has and wants to try to help and do everything. Or the little girl who wants to act and dress uh, just like mommy. When children, little children are asked, or even little older children are asked what they want to do when they grow up, almost always they say what their parents do, whatever it is, the respective parent. They want to be like the parents. We see it in teens who uh, have sports heroes and they want to wear the same shoes and the same outfit and the same whatever as their sports heroes. It's interesting, though, with teens, um, there's been plenty of polls that have been taken, surveys of teens about who they admire most, who their role models are. And overwhelmingly, teens in the 13 to 18 year age group bracket say that their parents are their primary role models. That's who they admire the most. So Barna recently took a survey of teens and he said, okay, you can't choose your parents in this one. So who would you choose as your role models? And again, overwhelmingly, the teens chose other family members, grandparents, aunts, uncles, other people in their lives. And then next after them came teachers and coaches. Pastors, religious leaders were pretty far down the list. Just thought I'd throw that out. <laughs> You know, when, uh, when I was growing up, my hero, I was a runner. My hero was Steve Prefontaine. I wanted to run just like Steve Prefontaine. When a child acts like a parent, does the same kind of thing, we say, ah, he's a chip off the old block. She's a chip off the old block. It's an old saying, but what, is it, what does it mean? It means they're made of the same stuff, Right? They both came from the same stuff. So what you see in the parent, you also see in the child. They're made of the same stuff. Of course, if it's negative behavior, we tend to say something like, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? <laughs> you see, odds are, if you really think about all this, odds are you are a role model for several different people in your life. It may be children, it may be others that you know, it may, it may be friends. Whoever it may be, you are a role model for a number of other people. Even if you're a youth, others are watching you. You're a role model. So, here's the question for you this morning. 
whom are you imitating? If others are following you, who are you following? Because we as adults imitate others too. You know, we're much more subtle about it, uh, probably, but at a new job, we look for those who are successful so we can figure out how to do this job in the best way. We look at others who seem successful in life and we want to imitate them. We want to be like them. We learn how to live the Christian life from watching and imitating others. One of my best friends back when we were at Peninsula Bible Church, he loved to imitate Ray Stedman and he would make a joke about it. But then he, when he got up and taught, you'd watch him and you'd go, that's Ray. Because he literally would imitate just the way he taught. The last two weeks, we've been looking in Ephesians and we've talked about this whole scenario of what God calls us to, to put off the old humanity and put on the new. He described it when Josh taught a couple weeks ago, and then last week we saw some very specific ways we are to do that, some specific areas. But sometimes I think as we think about, okay, I've got to put off the old and put on the new, a lot of us get stuck in the putting off part. We're struggling with sin, and we're trying to put it off, and we struggle and we struggle and we pray about it and we get caught up in it and we get focused on the negative behavior, the sins we're struggling with, the lust, the selfishness, the lack of loving others, etc. And we tend to get consumed by that and we get stuck there. That's not God's plan for us. That's not what he wants for us. So in our passage today, Paul commands us what we should really be focusing on, what we should be looking to, that we should not be really focusing on the sin ultimately, but on God himself. We are to be imitators of God. He is to be our role model. That's the best way to live in this new humanity, to really let the life of Christ flow through us in life. So how do we do that? How do we imitate We who live here on earth, how do we imitate an invisible God? What does that look like? Our passage today will help us. So let's begin with prayer and we'll look together at this. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the role models you've put in our lives to help us grow. Parents, family, friends, etc., I pray that you'd help us learn this morning what it means to imitate you, to keep our eyes on you, to have you be our vision, as we just sang, in a way that would allow us to truly be imitators of you so people might look at us and say, wow, they're a chip off the old block. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's how Paul begins. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children. One thing that strikes me from that command there, be or become imitators of God. Let this be part of your life. Be imitators. He doesn't say imitate God. The command isn't imitate God, which could be taken as, okay, look for something to imitate and kind of do that. No, he says, be a certain kind of person. And then he gives a noun, imitators. I think what he's saying, it needs to be a whole lifestyle, that your life is to be consumed with imitating God. The word there, imitate, is mimetai in the Greek, where we get our word mimic. 
Mimic God in your life. And whatever you do, be the kind of person so somebody can look at you and say they're an imitator of God. That's the kind of person they are in everything we do. In other words, make it a lifestyle. Make it part of your life so that people think and see (laughs) that you are made of the same stuff as God. Well, how do we do that? I mean, how can we, fallen human beings, be made of the same stuff as God? Be really a chip off the old block. How can we do that? Well, when you and I accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He plants His Holy Spirit in us. Do you realize God's in you? And we forget that sometimes. But if God is in me, then I am made of the same stuff as God. I've got His spiritual life in me. We're clearly not God. (laughs) He's God. But He's planted His life in us by His Holy Spirit, and therefore I am made of the same stuff. I really am part of this new humanity that God's creating, recreating after the fall and making us new. And therefore, because I have His life in me, I really can be like Him, part of the new people of God. And he says, do it as beloved children. What's he saying there? Imitate God because He loves you so much. And he's drawn an analogy here, right? Like a, like a little child, and he, he specifies as a beloved child, a f- child who knows they're loved by their parent and really looks up to the parent and wants to be just like him. He said, be that way. You're, bo- you're a beloved child. God loves you immensely, deeply, completely. So imitate Him. Want to be like Him. He loved us enough to take our sins away, to deal with them, to change our lives, to do amazing things. If you just look back in chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that... God did all that. He raised us up, seated us with Him. Even though we were dead, we couldn't do anything for ourselves to make ourselves spiritually alive. He gave us life. He did all this. And this is why. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you realize how much God loves you? You're a beloved child of His. And He said, I want to raise you up, give you life, bring you out of death, so that my purpose is that I might just pour my grace and kindness on you for eternity. Don't you want to imitate a God like that? To look up to a parent like that and say, Wow, Father, (laughs) I want to be like you. And like a parent who sees his child imitating him, and is delighted in that because it's honoring. So God's delighted when He sees us imitating Him as well, when we become a chip off the old block. The old famous saying, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. There's a lot of truth to that. When we imitate Him, it honors Him. It brings great 
encouragement to him. It shows how much we love him back. So what does this mean practically? I mean, really. Um, How do we imitate God? Again, he's he's an invisible God. There's a number of things we can't do to imitate him. God created the universe. Well, I can't create something out of nothing. God's omniscient. He knows everything. Well, I can't imitate that. I'm a long ways from that. Uh, He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. I don't have his kind of power. He's omnipresent. He can be everywhere at once. I'm limited to right here. So how can we imitate God? What do we imitate about him? Well, I think there's two clear examples in this passage. Notice the first word, therefore. Therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore, what should you ask? What's it there for? All right, I love this. Look at all these grammarians here. Your syntax is getting excellent, I've got to say. Ask what it's there for. It always refers back. Notice the verse right before this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. God has forgiven you. You should forgive others. Now Paul emphasizes that. He says, therefore, be imitators of God in how you forgive one another. Be a forgiving person just as God is. The cross of Christ has covered my sin. God did whatever he could to forgive us. And when he sent Jesus to the cross, that forgiveness covered my sin, past, present, future. It's all done with. Everything I've ever done or will do is covered by the blood of Christ. It's been forgiven. And when I try to stir it up and say, yeah, but look at this terrible thing I've done. I'm just an awful person. He says, what thing? Uh, It's forgiven. It's gone. Jesus took that on the cross. It's over with. It doesn't matter how much we struggle with sin if we've trusted Him. God has forgiven us. You see, what He's saying, being our imitation of that, is that we are to forgive in the same way He's forgiven us. That means there's no room for Christians to hold grudges. It does mean, yes, that people harm us and sin against us. That's a given. The world hangs on to those. The world says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. The world says, forget it. I'm not going to have a relationship with you because you hurt me, or I'm going to punish you. I'm going to make sure you hurt back. That's the old humanity. But he says one of the primary ways we can imitate God as believers in Christ and what should characterize the body of Christ, and I mentioned it last week, but I'm emphasizing it again because he's saying it. Therefore, what should characterize a believer in Jesus Christ because we've been forgiven so much is that we freely give forgiveness to others. There's no room for holding grudges. We can do the same for others as he's done for us. Good old uh, Peter was struggling with this as Jesus was teaching about forgiveness if your brother sins against you in Matthew chapter 18. And he says, you know, walk through this process and, and you need to forgive them if they repent and you need to let it go and not hang on to it. Then Peter came and said to him in verse 21 of Matthew 18, okay, Lord, but I want to know how much I should forgive. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
you know, give me a limit at least, God. <laughs> Up to seven times. Now, the teaching of the day is that you could forgive someone up to three times and then after that you didn't have to forgive them anymore. That's what the rabbis taught because that was the limit. Three strikes, you're out. But notice what Jesus says. And, and so Peter thinks he's being incredibly generous. Seven times? I mean, pff, I'm being really generous here, aren't I? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, if any of us could keep count of that many grudges, then maybe we could say, okay, I'm done forgiving now. It's been 490 times. <laughs> but really what Jesus is saying, right, is there is, should be no end to our forgiveness, ever. See, that's imitating God because there's no end to his forgiveness. We should be a forgiving community that when people walk in here, they should be embraced by forgiveness that is being a chip off the old block. And when you see my selfishness and my weakness and my failure and my words that are not good and you f extend the same forgiveness to me that God does, then I know God's love a little better. And what a privilege we have to extend that to others. So when people speak unkind words to you, when they gossip behind your back, when they hurt you, when they're selfish, when they ignore you, when they neglect you, when they're mean to you, imitate God. Extend forgiveness. Let it go, just as God in Christ has forgiven us. So Paul commands us, be imitators of God. Keep your eyes on him and imitate him. There's a second suggestion of how we can imitate God in this verse, this little verse here, where he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. What does God do to us? He loves us. Beloved children. So we can always imitate God in love, in the way he loves us, how he delights in us as children, how he pursues us. He keeps after us because he cares for us. He meets our needs. He provides for us. He wants to be with us. He hopes in us. A great passage on love, I think, is a perfect description of God's love for us and how we are to love one another in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, it doesn't seek its own is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I encourage you to read that and put God's name in there. God is patient. God is kind. And then put your own name in there. Say, this is what I want to be, Lord, as I imitate you. I want to imitate you in love. But he goes on to command us, okay, keep your eyes on him, imitate him, mimic him. Those are just a couple of ways. I mean, we could look at a lot of other ways. He's faithful, he's kind, he's compassionate, slow to anger. He's good. He's righteous. I mean, there's a lot of ways we can pursue being like him, imitating him. But let's look at the second command that 
Paul gives us because it fits in with what we're talking about. He says, secondly, walk in love. But notice he says, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us or loved us and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do you get what Paul's saying there? He's saying, imitate God and imitate Jesus. Walk in love just as he loved you. And that's the literal translation is walk in love. Let this be your lifestyle. Let it be how you walk through life so that everywhere you walk through life, let love be left in your footprints. The word for love here, we just need to highlight it because we forget sometimes. The word for love here is agape. It's the Greek word agape. Now, there's other words for love in Greek. We get confused in America because, in English, because we only have one word for love. And so we use it in all kinds of ways and we get really confused and the world is completely confused about what love really is, especially biblical Christian love. There's the Greek word storge, which means family affection. Like a parent for the child, this care for one another in the family, you have this affection, that's storge. Another Greek word is phile. Phile is the word for brotherly love, where you care for a friend, you have an affection for a friend. Phile, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Okay, that's phile. The third word is eros. That's the romantic love, erotic love between a husband and a wife. Those intense, passionate feelings. Now that's kind of all the world sees in love. That's all the world really understands is those three words. So when we say love in America, when you hear the word love, it always seems to be referring to one of those three things. But the Greek word agape is a distinctly Christian word. It's something the world doesn't understand, and yet it's clearly what we're called to. It's God's love for us and the kind of love we are to have for one another. Clearly, agape love in the Scriptures is not a feeling. All those are feelings. But God's kind of love is not a feeling. It's a commitment of the will to seek the best of another person. It's a way of walking through life. Love is a verb, DC Talk sang. It's how you live out your life. It's what you do. Something that our culture doesn't understand. But true Christian love is not a feeling. It's often a victory over negative feelings because you might be feeling badly and yet you can still love deeply. Because agape love goes far deeper even than our superficial emotions. When a man or a woman comes to me and sits in my office saying, yeah, you know what, I just don't love my wife or husband anymore. I've heard that several times. I just don't love him anymore. Well, my question is, okay, what kind of love are you talking about? Uh, at the moment, you don't feel affection for him? Well, feelings come and go. You don't feel erotic love for him, passionate love for him? Well, you know what? That comes and goes too. All of those kinds of love come and go, but if you have an agape love for someone, it never has to come or go. You can't 
get to a point, say, I don't love my spouse anymore, and unless you're disobedient to God and say, I'm not going to love him, period. I'm going to be selfish, go my own way, and I'm not going to put them first. Well, yeah, you can choose to do that, but that's not a feeling. That's a commitment of the will to put yourself and Satan <laughs> above God and above what he's called you to do. Agape love, trill love, is different than that. What we're called to, and he uses the word when he says, husbands, love your wives, over in verse 25. It's the word agape. That's what we're called to, men. An agape love, a commitment of putting our wives first, whether we feel like it or not. And he says, walk in love. Let this characterize everything you do so that everywhere you walk through life, whoever you come in contact with, Love, agape love, oozes out of you just as Jesus' sacrifice, just as Jesus died for us and loved us, just as he sacrificed his love for us. This is the real definition, right, of agape love. It's this self-sacrifice. And you can't find a better passage than Philippians chapter 2 to describe Jesus' love for us. 2.5, have this attitude in yourselves, imitate Jesus, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, though he had every right to be God, to enjoy the fullness of who he was as God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to, know, want to know what agape love looks like? Memorize that. I run that through my mind pretty much every morning because I, I need to keep that picture for me of what agape love really is, where Jesus could have held on to being God, but he emptied himself he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death. So what does this teach us about agape love? Well, really, the kind of love we are all called to imitate in him. By the way, it's a love that is, permeates everywhere. It's the sacrificial love of Jesus actually is all through the world as well. People are moved by the story. Christine Lindsay, the author said this, have you ever noticed in all good stories, Christian or not, the key element is sacrificial love. All stories in one way or another point out to all individuals what one man, Jesus Christ, did on the cross for them. All good stories contain the story of sacrificial love. So what does it look like? What do we learn from this? Well, for one, agape love costs us our life. It always costs you something. It's a dying to self like Jesus did. It's a saying, it's saying, okay, I'm going to set aside what I want for the sake of another person, for their good. That's imitating our Father. That's imitating Jesus. And secondly, along with that, is agape love is always for the sake of someone else for their good. It sets aside what I want for the sake of another. It puts someone else above myself, places myself under another, and lifts 
them up. I really like the story of To End All Wars. It's a true story written by a Brit, British soldier who was uh, captured in World War II by the Japanese, and they were in an internment camp, prison camp. They were forced to build a railroad, the Bridge of the River Kwai. That movie, you may have seen it, is about their story, although it's kind of... Anyway, the movie isn't exactly according to the book, but in this prison camp, conditions were horrible. Many of the prisoners died. But God began to work in amazing ways. Many came to Christ, and, and there were so many stories of self-sacrifice that happened. Just one that stuck out to me was one day, they'd been working all day building, a railroad, building this railroad and using tools and everything. They came in, they were exhausted, they're standing, lined up, before the Japanese guards and one of the guards came out and said, one of the uh, shovels is missing. And the Japanese leader was furious. He said, who stole it? Come forward now. Nobody came forward. So he said, okay, I'll die. He called his soldiers over and they were getting ready to shoot them one by one and and a man stepped forward from the crowd said, I took it. The Japanese commander beat him to death in front of everybody, right there. And then one of the Japanese soldiers came running out, wait, wait, all the shovels are here. He gave up his life, that man, for others. What a picture of what work called to. Another story, just to kind of paint this picture of what Jesus has done for us, is a story written by Angel Chow from the earthquake, huge earthquake in China. Whoops. A couple of years ago, 2008 actually. And it says this as they were digging through the rubble. When the rescuers reached the ruins of a young woman's house, they saw her dead body through the cracks. But her pose was somehow strange that she knelt on her knees like a person was worshiping. Her body was leaning forward and her two hands were supported by an object. The collapsed house had crushed her back and her head. With so many difficulties, the leader of the rescue team put his hand through a narrow gap on the wall to reach the woman's body. He was hoping she might be alive. However, the cold and stiff body told him that she had passed away. He and the rest of the team left this house and were going to search the next collapsed building. But for some reason, the team leader was driven by a compelling force to go back to the ruined house of the dead woman. Again, he knelt down and used his hand through the narrow cracks to search the little space under her dead body. Suddenly, he screamed with excitement, A child! There's a child! The whole team worked together. Carefully, they removed the piles of stones and ruins around the dead woman. There was a three-month-old little boy wrapped in a flowery blanket under his mother's dead body. Obviously, the woman had made an ultimate sacrifice to save her son. When the house was falling, she used her body to make a cover or shield to protect her son. The little boy was still sleeping peacefully when the team leader picked him up. The medical doctor came quickly to examine the little boy. After he opened the blanket, he saw a cell phone inside the blanket. There was a text 